Well, this morning we continue our sermon series, Meeting Jesus. We are exploring different encounters of different persons throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. But whether you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or this is the very first time you are hearing his name, I want us to think about what happens when we encounter Jesus in our lives. Whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, because every time we meet Jesus, something happens. Whether we realize it or not in that moment or season of life, something is happening. And if you read the Gospels, you know that everywhere Jesus goes, people are affected. Some are healed. Some are transformed. Some are actually agitated. Some confused. And some are simply seen for the very first time. Well, there are some of us here this morning that have been healed. Some that have been transformed. Probably some that are angry, some that don't understand, and some who simply desire to be seen. But wherever you are, whatever you've been through in your journey, I'm filled with joy that you are here this morning. And it is my prayer that throughout this series, you will encounter Jesus in a way that profoundly affects your life in which you experience the transformational message of the gospel. Our scripture for today is one of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible, and it is the foundation of the gospel message, for it is the very purpose for which God sent his Son into the world, and the very reason that the gospel changes everything. Our scripture reader for today is Marvin Barnes. So Marvin, you may go ahead and make your way to the podium. If you're able, we ask that you please stand and face the center of the room. We face the center of the room to remind us that scripture is central in our lives and we stand because this is indeed the authoritative word of God. So Marvin, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read John 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thank you, Myron. You may all be seated. Now, right away, I want to clarify and acknowledge that in this passage, we do not see an interaction. We do not see someone meeting Jesus. But this passage is born directly from an encounter that I want to show you. This morning, we are going to listen in on a conversation, maybe the most important conversation in the Gospels, because from this conversation, 
comes the very foundation of God's story of redemption, the very purpose of Jesus' ministry. It is the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's part of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin, and he has earned a place at the table, so to speak. He is part of the elite, the Ivy League graduate, if you will, a man who is supposed to have all the answers. He knows the scriptures. He knows the law. That he also knows that there's something happening. There's something about Jesus. And in this clip, I think it does a great job of showing the urgency and emotion of Nicodemus and Jesus much better than I could explain to you. So I think it's worth watching. This is a clip from the TV series, The Chosen. Check it out. Don't know where to start. I have so many questions. Shall we sit first? Oh, yes. Of course. The Eastern Slums. Hmm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm -hmm. But I have never heard anyone tell a paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe you are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? (laughs) (laughs) Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, may she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That part of you, that, is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. Do you hear this? you hear? The wind? How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. 
I hear it sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the spirit. The spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the spirit, you can recognize his effect. Mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes, and I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents. And they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert, and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. At the beginning of the clip, we see that Nicodemus is anxious. He's eager to hear from Jesus. What his purpose for his teachings is. He has all these questions that he wants answered. But remember, he's supposed to be the one with the answers. As a part of the Jewish ruling council, he's the one that others turn to. Yet here he is in pursuit of some nugget of information. And he's willing to go to great lengths to attain it. Which in this case means going to meet Jesus under the cover of darkness. He knows that there's been all sorts of wandering preachers who have come and gone over the years who've never been any sort of threat to the faith and all eventually flame out. But now there are rumblings in the synagogue. There are signs that point to this Jesus being different. Nicodemus says so himself. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Nicodemus is sitting here anticipating, eager for Jesus' response because he has seen the things that Jesus is doing. And he's looking for that inside scoop. Because you see, Nicodemus is an intellectual. He has to understand. That's why he's come. That's why he's risked it this evening to come and meet Jesus. But yet Jesus doesn't give him the answer he's expecting. Rather, Jesus responds by saying, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What does that mean? Born 
again. Nicodemus is confused and he's frantically trying to grasp what does that mean in the panic of returning to the womb? What the heck does that mean? But as Jesus is gaining more and more of a following, people are talking, the synagogue is buzzing about this guy. Nicodemus wants to understand. And it seems that it's in this moment that Nicodemus' insecurity begins to show that he's looking for some sort of edge, some sort of answer, because he's an elitist, he's an academic. He's not looking for some spiritual riddle. Because you see, all that Nicodemus has has been on his own merit, his own achievements, the things that he's accomplished. So he's not looking for a spiritual riddle. He's looking for accolades. But Jesus cuts right through all of that and essentially tells Nicodemus, I don't care what you've achieved. I don't care what status you carry. You're not impressing God, Nicodemus. You're missing the point. In fact, you are missing the kingdom. And Nicodemus is confused. And he says, how can this be? You see, he wants that explanation. But instead, what Jesus offers him is transformation. An explanation would have sufficed for Nicodemus. He could have gone home content He could have slept soundly that night. But Jesus tells him, nothing you've done counts. There's not an angel sitting at the pearly gates with an abacus adding up your good deeds. That's not how it works. You need to start over from the beginning. You need to be born again. And you're in the same boat as everyone else. Ouch. That's got a sting, doesn't it? To hear that all, after all you've done, all you've attained, the hours you've put in studying Torah, the Jewish law, and now you're being told to start over with everyone else? That's like telling an NBA center who's working on a new dunk to go work on his layup form. It's almost offensive. And Jesus even says to him, You are Israel's teacher, and yet you do not understand these things. He points out to Nicodemus his high status and says, you still don't understand. Again, ouch. So the question then that we face along with Nicodemus is what does it mean to be born again? When you think about that idea of being born again, someone probably comes to mind for you. But it's the person who found Jesus in prison. The person who fell into financial ruin and hit rock bottom. The person who's addicted to drugs. Surely it's not Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus was an upright and righteous man. Maybe more so than anyone else. Why would he possibly need to be born again? But it's actually quite simple. Because just like you and me, Nicodemus, more righteous than most, suffers from the human condition. 
It means that Nicodemus is no different than the sinners and the tax collectors he looks down upon. It means that we all experience key events in our lives that include learning and conflict, suffering. We experience emotions and characteristics such as joy and sorrow. The human condition is complex. It's unique to each individual. And yet at the end of the day, no one escapes it. And in the human condition, it doesn't matter if you're the convict on the cross hanging next to Jesus. The one who's simply thrown all their get-out-of-jail-free cards out the window. Who's wasted their life. Or if you are Nicodemus, striving for perfection and excellence. It's the low lives compared to those who fly first class. But at the end of it all, Jesus says, what matters is where do you turn your eyes? I want to get back to our scripture passage for this morning, that verse that so many of us have heard before. But before we get there, we have to look at the last part of Jesus and Nicodemus' conversation. We have to pay close attention because this part often gets missed, but it's vital to our verses. If we look at verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Anything seem odd about that? The first verse maybe we can understand, right? Jesus sent from heaven. But what about the next two verses, 14 and 15? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be be lifted up. You see, Jesus is referencing back to this peculiar, mysterious story in the Old Testament. Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness. But what happens in the wilderness is that over and over again, the Israelites turn away from God. They turn on God and they turn on Moses and they cry out against them and saying, why have you brought us out of Egypt? And they detest the miserable food that they have to eat. They cry out about the manna that they've been eating. And they say, forget it, we're done with this. We're sick of it. But you see, God is providing them exactly what they need. And yet they reject it. God shows them mercy and grace, and they turn around and spit it back in his face. So as punishment, venomous snakes come among the people, and the snakes start biting the people, and they start dying. And now all of a sudden, the Israelites have to come to their senses, right? And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we screwed up, we're sorry, we repent, we sinned, just take the snakes away, just take them away. But, and here's the key, church, but that's not what God does. He doesn't take the snakes away, rather he gives them what they need in order to live. Because if he just took the snakes away, they'd soon forget and they'd just return to their old habits. Rather, he gives them a signpost to turn their suffering, to turn to in their suffering. 
It's this short, weird, and yet fascinating story that happens in the book of Numbers that Jesus picks up on here in John and uses to illustrate his point to Nicodemus. And we see in that clip that Nicodemus knew the story, right? He's a scholar, so of course he knows it. He's been studying it all his life. He knows that the snakes were not taken away. Rather, God instructed Moses to lift up the bronze snake, put it on a pole, and raise it up for all to see. And, in, and if and when the people are bitten, all they have to do is turn their eyes to the snake. And Jesus says, so it is for the Son of Man. He must be lifted up that everyone who looks at him and believes will have eternal life. But why? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Do we see it, church? Do we understand what Jesus is saying? The, the snakes were sent to the Israelites as punishment, as condemnation for their sins. And yet in this paradoxically mysterious story, the snakes become the very symbol of healing and deliverance for the Israelites. And they didn't have to do anything other than turn their eyes towards the snake and believe. Jesus tells Nicodemus, I have not come here to condemn the world. I have not come here to overthrow Rome or to punish sinners and tax collectors. In fact, I'm here to do the very opposite. I'm here to save the sinners and the tax collectors, the thief on the cross. In fact, the whole world. See, Jesus welcomes the outcasts. He doesn't condemn them to hell. Now, as a human race, we have spent the better part of the last few centuries pursuing and trying to perfect the human condition. To eliminate suffering, to eliminate conflict, to provide our own salvation. But have we really done that at all? In a lot of ways, haven't we just actually created more and new forms of suffering and conflict? We have tried to create our own ideals, who's on the inside and who's on the out. We've created conveniences to make our lives easier. We've created new forms of connection and community. And yet every one of these things has its dark side. We aren't saving ourselves. If anything, we're creating more snakes to kill us. We've turned to our own devices to save ourselves, to try and to perfect the human condition. But there's one problem. 
The human condition is fatally flawed. At the very end of our scene, Nicodemus, after hearing this story that he clearly knows, you saw the look of confusion on his face, still doesn't get it. He says, our people aren't dying from snake bites. They're dying from oppression and taxation. So he just wants Jesus to take the snakes away, take Rome away. But what Jesus says is it's far deeper than that. It's rooted in sin. On one end of the spectrum, you may have the sinners who've reduced God by just turning away. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees who are trying to put God in their debt. One reduces God by saying God doesn't exist, while the other says, look God at how good I am. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Look to me. God could just remove our suffering, couldn't he? Of course he could. He could snap his fingers, it would all go away. But then he would become little more than a convenience to us. Essentially, he'd become our own personal bottle of whiteout. C.S. Lewis, arguably the most well-known Christian author of the 20th century, says, whether we like it or not, God gives us what we need, not what we now think we want. God gives us what we need, not what we now think we want. And in his book, The Great Divorce, he describes the differences between heaven and hell. And one of the main characters is a man who's in pursuit. A man who sees himself as this esteemed scholar who's on the road to discovery, who's always in search of the next big thing. He's never satisfied. For him, there is no end in itself. Pursuit is simply the name of the game. At the end of the chapter, he exclaims in error this about the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, one feels for the first time what a disaster it was. What a tragic waste. So much promise cut short. See, he got it wrong. Way wrong. Because he believed that Jesus' purpose was to come into the world in order to demonstrate the perfection of the human condition. But he missed the point. Because what our passage exclaims is that this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. And Jesus says, I am that light. In the midst of suffering, keep your eyes fixed on me. For then you will meet the light in your darkness. There you will find saving in the midst of your suffering. This conversation with Nicodemus is not the last time that we would see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. Because something happens. Between chapters 3 and 19 in the Gospel of John, something happens to Nicodemus. 
Something changes. His perspective. When Nicodemus meets the one who saves. All of his life, Nicodemus has been the one that others have looked up to. The one who's supposed to have all the answers. But now here is Nicodemus, standing at the foot of Calvary, watching the Son of Man be lifted up on the very sign of condemnation, the cross. And now, finally, he gets it. He gets it. Just like the snake, a symbol of condemnation was lifted up, turned into a sign of deliverance. So too has the Son of Man been lifted up that those who look to him would be saved. And he gets it. If we look at chapter 19, it describes that this man who for so long looked down on others, who for so long judged others, compared others, who sought to be spotlessly clean according to the law, who saw others as unclean, who judged them in that way, now actually participates in moving and preparing the body of Christ for burial. But you see, to touch a dead body marked you as unclean. Such a task was surely not the task of a Pharisee, but that of the lowliest servants. But now here is the greatest of the Pharisees, humbly serving. For once in his life, no longer worrying about what others think. But having turned his eyes towards Jesus, towards the one who doesn't condemn, but who saves the world, he stops comparing, he stops condemning, and starts serving. Church, we have to stop judging. Stop comparing. Stop lifting ourselves up and looking to ourselves. Rather, we must look to the one who was lifted up in order that we might be saved and have eternal life. That is the life that we are called to when we meet Jesus. We are called to serve just as Christ did. Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what an amazing miracle it is that you came into this world, that you gave of yourself, your Son, in order that we might be saved. That he paid such a heavy cost for us. So God, I pray that every person here may be affected in a positive way, in a way that changes their lives when they come to know you. Whether this is the first time or the thousandth time that they've heard about you, that they would encounter you and meet you in this place today, that you would work in their heart.
and that they would leave this place changed and that they would live a life serving because they remember to turn their eyes to you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Receive now this blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.